the box. Stop. Look and watch. Ready yet? Get set. Oh, here goes. Let's do it. Welcome once again, everyone, to Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. I'm Carly. And today we are joined by two great friends of the pod uh, for his second appearance on the show. Taylor Grimes is here today, and for the first time ever, Mr. Travis Snyder. Hey. What's up? Happy to be back. Oh, we are so happy to have you, and happy April to you both. It's hard to believe we're already a quarter of the way through 2021, but alas, here we are. Um, And today we are talking about a very, very important film. So far on this program, we have definitely touched some popular movies, uh, some some blockbusters, some some high grossing fare. uh, But but few of the films, I think, could be considered Uh, in the pantheon of of the titans of 90s cinema in quite the same way as today's movie. I'm talking, of course, about the 1997 film The Shawshank Redemption, directed by Brian Robbins and starring Kenan Thompson and Kel Mitchell. Um, None other. It's it's a very important film. And uh, I I think of a scene in Kill Bill Volume 2 where the late David Carradine has just injected Uma Thurman with the truth serum, and while he's waiting for it to take effect, is explaining uh, the uniqueness of the ideology and mythology behind uh, Superman, his favorite comic book character. And he explains that Superman stands alone in the superhero universe as the only character who is Superman. His alter ego is the human, as opposed to Spider-Man, who is really Peter Parker, Batman, who is really Bruce Wayne. And he explains that this God, this, this ubermensch, this supreme enlightened being, Clark Kent is how he views humanity. So too, I think, is Kel Mitchell's interpretation of his character, Ed. It is how he sees as an enlightened, spiritual, pious being himself, all of humanity, and specifically, I think, white working class culture. But it is his his interpretation that he gives to us, and I think it's a really, really special thing. Gentlemen, discuss. <laughs> well, I'm a dude, and he's a dude, and she's a dude, and we're all dudes? That's yeah. correct. Yeah. And in this way, too, Kel has created a character and an ideology that is post-gender. Right? <laughs> I, think, I think that a lot of times when we talk about dudes rocking, it feels like it is excluding uh, a particular portion of, of our fellow man, of, of, of women, of, of non-binary people. But we are all dudes. And so dudes rock is something we can all carry with us as, as a framing conceit. I would argue that Kel's portrayal of Ed is both post-gender and post-sexual. 
Like, I was very uncomfortable when they tried to sexualize him with, like, the Roxanne Carmen Electra character. It just, like, didn't work for me. I was like, this is, Kel, like, doesn't care about this shit. And he doesn't. Like, he, he you know, he rebuffs her and plays mini golf instead. But, uh, yeah, post-gender, post-sexual. He does seem to have, like, some sort of attraction to Linda Cardellini's character. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's, like, a slight indication that, like, and maybe it's, like, a mutual acknowledgement of their own strange existence. Like, they're recognizing something of themselves in each other. But there's, like, a spark, a glint in his eye. There is. And it's we feel better about that connection than we do the one with Roxanne. That one makes more sense than the Carmen Electra piece. 100% agreed. But um, we're jumping ahead already, I realize. Yeah, sorry. Maybe we should talk a little bit, gentlemen, about your individual experiences with the Shawshank Redemption and uh, and maybe our collective experience with it as well. I, I can, I'm happy to start because... <laughs> it was done to you. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't say that the Shawshank... The victim here. <laughs> it's not something that, you know organically appeared in my life i would say i I didn't i wasn't raised with the shawshank redemption you know i don't have a deep nostalgic fondness for the shawshank redemption but i was blessed with it you know when when this this man sitting across the computer from me mr aaron casillas uh actually prior to even seeing it i remember a thanksgiving where uh, Aaron recounted the entire plot of the Shawshank Redemption to me and other Thanksgiving goers. Um, and after that moment, I thought, you know, I don't, I don't think I ever need to see the Shawshank Redemption, <laughs> having never seen it. Uh, but that was not to be. And years later, Aaron, you, you of course, brought to, to my attention that there would be a, I think, a Saturday morning showing of the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, a, a matinee at the Draft House, like yeah. at like nine in the morning. That's right. And thus my love affair with this beautiful film began. Yep, that's pretty much it. I, well, I will say, though, in my defense that I was sparked into and motivated to recount the plot of the Shawshank Redemption because Travis... <laughs> Uh, Travis brought it up and had inquired as to whether or not anyone at this particular Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner had ever seen the film. And I proved to him that I had. You did. Because <laughs> I, I don't know if Taylor's recounting of what happened really gets the, 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 <laughs> the regaling. I mean, it was... <laughs> it, it, I, and that was the moment where I understood, like, the... the depth of the retentiveness of Mr. Casillas's memory uh, just just because it wasn't it was it was not just plot in every detail of of this movie it was every word that was said and this probably took 45 minutes <laughs> like half the length of the film I know, like You're almost really as long as the movie yeah yeah um, I mean that was the day of the recounting is probably one of the most special days of my life. Um, it re- really, really, truly was. I had just moved to San Francisco, 
and um, was couch surfing. I had a um, an abrupt departure outside of my control from a foreign land. Um, and basically had to move back to the United States and just kind of randomly moved to uh, to Oakland. Um, was pretty like shooken up from having to like leave a life that I had built and also dead broke. I think I spent my like last hundred of the two hundred dollars that I had um, on that Thanksgiving dinner. And um, and I was so I was couch surfing with this really awesome Dominican family in San Leandro. And um, they were just ginormous stoners, and that same um, that same day introduced me to uh, um, California marijuana, which was blew my mind and and, and wrecked me. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, so they uh, yeah yeah they were they were just like oh have, you know they wanted to watch the Shawshank Redemption naturally, and I'm like sure I'll be the amenable guest and watch this movie that I vaguely remember from my childhood. And uh, yeah, I don't remember why it came up, but um, I brought it to the attention of this glorious Thanksgiving dinner and had one of the most memorable experiences of my life hearing uh, Aaron Casillas run through it scene by scene and make people feel really uncomfortable. (laughs) These Um, these sound like abuser tactics, for the record. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, everybody. And, you know, to, to add to that narrative, it was also, I think, the first time that we had met in the flesh um, Taylor's then girlfriend, <laughs> and we um, impressed her. <laughs> it was it was our also very the first time I met Travis. That's right. Oh! It, was, it was a first meeting. It was it was a lot of of first encounters for a lot of people. Um, so to break the ice, ice, I felt like the only way forward, the only path to making the evening uh, memorable beyond the delicious food and the great wine was to recount the Shawshank Redemption to everybody. The Shawshank Redemption in that way is is a bridge. I can say that of the first like three things that Aaron ever told me about himself when we first met, this story was one of those three things. <laughs> and he was like really proud of it too. <laughs> really really proud of it um and like actually started to do a little bit of the the line reading of Shawshank Redemption there at the bar that we were at you can't not do it (laughs) um and then I said and when I inquired if you know he actually like changed his voice to play some of the different characters he did tell me that he did but I'm gonna ask the two of you gentlemen to corroborate whether or not that's true I don't, I don't believe remember. so. No. Okay. I, I think it was just yeah. Uh, so then all of this is horseshit because I, Kel's voice <laughs> is the best part of, I, of the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, I probably embellished a little bit in order to try to impress in our first encounters together. Um, I think that you know it's it's kind of like little white lies on your resume. Like that's a lot like <laughs> what meeting a new person is like when you're recounting stories of your past at which they were not present. And, mm-hmm. and these things evolve over time. But I think that um, for the most part, the sheer like number of corroborating details that we can all individually place the fact is you lends to thing. its veracity. So that's an important thing to, to note here. But yes. uh, let's, get, let's get right into it. We should talk about the Shawshank Redemption. And you know, Travis, speaking of being broke, it is really the impetus for this film and for True. the film's narrative, which is uh, a young Kenan Thompson 
playing a, a, a high school age boy named Dexter is uh, pretty fresh off of D2. Pretty fresh off of, yes, D2 the Mighty Ducks. And of course, both of these uh, formidable actors, Keenan Thompson and Kel Mitchell, uh, appearing in their own television program on Nickelodeon, Keenan and Kel, and also, uh, you know, seasoned vets of the sketch comedy series All That, a very important and formative program for myself. SNL for urban teenagers. I, I just learned that. I just like, I when I was researching the episode, I was like, that's what that was? Oh my God. Well, Wait, you, you did, did, you not, did you not watch all that? Well, I did, but I was completely unaware of what I was seeing. I, so at that time, I didn't even realize that television worked on a schedule. I just thought I got like profoundly lucky whenever I'd sit down and a show that I liked was on. <laughs> like that, I didn't learn that till my later years. You missed the TV Guide channel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Keenan as Dexter here is is ready to embrace and enjoy a reprieve from his studies for summer vacation. And on his last day of school to flex, he has taken his mother's uh, shiny red convertible. I think it's a convertible. Maybe not. Maybe it's I'm, not. I'm misremembering. It's just a shiny, shiny red sports just car. Just a shiny red sports car. He's driving. He's unlicensed because he's only 15. And he suddenly and abruptly encounters uh, none other than Ed, an employee at the fast food chain, the Shawshank Redemption, roller skating to deliver some some burgers uh, to a to a client of theirs. No, he's roller skating because he woke up late. Remember, it's right. a clock, and you missed the best joke. No, 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 no. He roller skates and gets there just in time to upset the construction worker. Oh yes, you're and right. then later he's in a rush because Mr. Bailey, the manager needs him to to deliver on the fly because their their uh, delivery driver is is nowhere to be found. You're or, right. Or injured himself on the fryer or something. Yes. The the collision I was thinking of was the one where he drags the girl behind him on a rope oh, on right. the way to work. That's right. When he's late. And then also catches a baby and then replaces a baby with a basketball on a blacktop. There's a lot of good stuff happening here. But rather than get bogged down in the minutiae, we'll just say that the film eventually uh, becomes a, a sort of working class buddy comedy that's also a, a fight the man kind of movie uh, in which Dexter and Ed uh, work through the summer, Dexter trying to, uh, to earn enough money to repair his mother's car as well as the damaged car of his teacher Sinbad. And uh, so, so they are hard at work, and their their idyllic summer at Good Burger, earning a living and enjoying each other's camaraderie, uh, is endangered by the corporate giant Mondo Burger opening across the street, run by the villainous Kurt. Hilarity ensues, hijinks ensue. There's a great musical number in an in asylum with George Clinton. There's a lot of good bits along the way, but. Uh, Somebody else, tell me a little bit about your favorite bit. I know, I know one that we already missed that's at the beginning of this film, which at the time that we watched this in Draft House, I think, produced the only audible <laughs> laugh from Taylor <laughs> through, through the 95-minute runtime. I think that the opening couple of minutes set uh, you know, just a roaring high that is really difficult to match throughout the movie. <laughs> the surreality of the the floating talking cheeseburgers like 
if they had continued that dream sequence for you know for the four hours of the Snyder cut, I would <laughs> I would have fucking loved it. So that's probably my favorite bit in the whole movie. Well, now that you took the good part, um... <laughs> I could pick another one if you want that one. No, 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 no. I mean, the whole movie for me is a vehicle by which to arrive at the dance sequence at the asylum <laughs> with none other than George Clinton himself. Yeah, like I I was watching that particular sequence this most recent time and hadn't seen this movie literally since I was a child and just like realized how special it was that it's in that it's in the movie and that it's like you know it has like all the trappings of like thriller and like the great sort of like Michael Jackson and and Janet Jackson and all the sort of like group music video dance sequences that we were used to watching and it just pops up in the movie and it's fucking awesome it's it's hands down my favorite part of the movie the dance moves are legit and the music bops there's nothing it, in the film that anticipates that particular scene either. nothing in the film it stands alone uh, in terms of its setting and in terms of its like general just sort of aesthetic and trappings we have no reason to believe that kel is musically inclined in any way we like see a flicker of hidden intelligence a couple of times throughout the movie um but yeah then he pops up and he just like leads this epic dance sequence it was a flash mob essentially <laughs> an early flash mob that's my favorite part of the movie and a dance fight <laughs> and a dance, dance fight, fight. <laughs> yes precisely it's also like a really unexpected music choice like in a yes. mo- in a movie that has mainly like ska and you know 90s pop like to have a funkadelic song in the middle is so bizarre the only thing that sort of hints at it is that sinbad's character i think is soundtracked with mm-hmm. you know that like era of funk yeah it's the, at any time the shaft theme song <laughs> yes <laughs> which is amazing and then he references it which is even better the the film i think the Shawshank Redemption really hits its stride when it becomes this story of uh, incarceration and then also escape from in this sort of uh, the, the, the kind of peak of the second act here into the climax of the film, right? In which the characters are attempting to escape their bondage. Yes. Um, it's, it's really when it settles into a groove. Mm-hmm. Is Kel the the prototype of the Manic Pixie Dream Boy? I th- he probably <laughs> is. Yeah. You know, we we often attribute that to, you know, potentially uh, uh, Alan Renee and and Hiroshima Mona Moore, you know, as sort of the the ur-manic pixie dream girl. But I really do think in terms of of its progression, its evolution into a masculine form, Ed is precisely that thing. Yeah, I feel like the other sort of iconic duos comedically that they quote are like, you know, an Abbott and Costello Laurel and Hardy, the straight man, the sort of like idiotic fumbling yo-yo. Well, if you recall, uh, the Coolio lyrics to the theme song for Keenan and Kel say, like Siegfried and Roy or Abbott and Costello, Magic and Kareem or Penn and Teller. Somebody's in trouble. Ah, here it goes. Oh, you're right. Yep. So so <laughs> he, he does he does cite a couple of the the <clears throat> most famous duos. Uh, but but Laurel and Hardy is one he misses, yes. But yes. Abbott and Costello. But is Abbott right and there. Costello nails the straight man, funny man. We were talking about this movie while we were watching it, and and I kind of said, 
the Shawshank Redemption is effectively, and, and I we only this was in our, our mind because we did this film on the show a couple of weeks ago, but the Shawshank Redemption is essentially just Wayne's World, but it feels like it's Wayne's World made by people who actually held a real job at some point. Interesting comparison too, since you know they're both based on like these really insubstantial comedy sketches turned into an hour and a half movie. Yes, exactly. Yes. That was the thing that like sold it for me, where I was Precisely. like, oh yeah, it, it's it's a feature length adaptation of a sketch comedy. Uh, or of a, of a sketch from a, sh- a show that has become this thing. See, now I'm wondering if that's like the easiest, essentially, plot narrative to to make out of you know something where you you have nothing. Like, is that like a a similar plot to like the Blues Brothers and like Night at the Roxbury, like all these things where these characters who we know nothing about, who have no depth or substance, they need to have like this really over the top antagonist. And the easiest way to do that is like a fight the man kind of story. Well, if the 90s are any indication, the answer to your question, Taylor, is absolutely yes. It is the <laughs> easiest way because there are so many of them. No, but, but Taylor's point is an interesting one because it's sort of it's going beyond the decade of the 90s where we've posited that a lot of this anti-corporate malaise was definitely prevalent in popular culture. The Blues Brothers, to your point, like has sort of the same animating drive in that movie and it is actually a really good way to sort of understand what might motivate a character that you know nothing about is just that there's this sort of like giant oppressive force that they need to contend with that makes a lot of sense to me now i'm sort of like thinking of it in the pantheon of of all of the snl sketch to movie films and that that definitely makes a lot of sense to me and i can't remember now is is it the same for the ladies man I've never seen it. Isn't his like, isn't the man in that one like the people trying to like expose his identity and trying to like shut him down for being like a corrupting force that like oh, over sexualizes yes. like their women and and like this just like a very prudish kind of I forgot about censorship, that one. like an FCC type thing. But yep. yeah, it's always that. You're right. Every single one of these movies is just an extension of the same fight the man kind of narrative. I will also say that I, in my mind, confused this movie with uh, Heavyweights, and I thought Ben Stiller was in it. I was like, oh yeah, Ben Stiller's totally in that. Another quality film of the same era. And another, like, anti, you know, corporate, like, parable. I was just amazed, because I knew this would happen, just because I've literally not seen a single (laughs) one of those movies that you just mentioned. (laughs) I have only seen The Shawshank Redemption. If you do nothing Um, else, watch Heavyweights. Okay, okay, okay. I will take that as a recommendation. My favorite bit, I think, is just probably um, all of Kurt's like threatening lines, like "You make your sauce for Kurt," or "You're if you mess with Kurt, you're going in the grinder." All of his lines are mondo. All of his lines are so extra. He's they just, are mondo. He's mondo. I was thinking of um, I don't know if you guys remember this, but there was a a bit in I believe it was Bill Clinton's section second election run when he was up against Bob Dole am I is that right mm-hmm. it was his second one yeah 96 election was 96 Bob Dole. election um and always on SNL they used to parody that Bob Dole spoke in the third person it was like a one of the many things we loved to hate about Bob Dole and I just found myself thinking about like how Kurt, 
like does that and that <laughs> I'm not saying there's it's like a direct reference of of Bob Dole because a lot of villains tend to speak in the third person but it was a very proximate cultural reference point when the time that this movie was being made it just like I every time he opened his mouth and said something in the third person I just thought of Bob Dole <laughs> I mean, just sharing that. It, it could be an extension of that. He says, right, like, you come make your sauce for Kurt. And then he says, like, who said that? Who talked while Kurt was talking? Yes. That's another good one, which I'm going to start employing myself. I will, I will start shouting that at people when they interrupt. One thing that I, I did want to lean into when we talk about the Shawshank Redemption is just sort of, well, well it's twofold. One of the, those things is the sort of, 90s fascination with fast food culture and how it's like a thing that over the course of the last mm. you know 20 20 odd years has has slowly faded like like they're no longer quite as as ubiquitous or or sort of collectively loved and appreciated the same way that they were in in terms of their appeal that they had in the 90s like that, that's gone now you know super size me did a lot to undercut that and and sort of like the slow food movement of like the the late aughts but then of course there's been sort of like a a, a kind of kickback from that and like a blowback in in the terms of like a lot of celebrity chefs like oh what's his name from Momofuku David Chen David right Chen. yeah like all these guys who sort of started to like shun like classicism and like like bougie like hot cuisine and slow food and you know started styling some of their slow food efforts around emulating the flavors of fast food right like making something that tastes like a Domino's pizza making something that that tastes like uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken or something like that. So I want to talk about the fast food obsession thing. The first thing I want to talk about is how uh, how indicative and, and how true to life this gets some of my experiences in the service industry. Because I know that you all may not have those things, but mm. I have myself worked for almost a decade in in service roles in the restaurant industry up until very recently. And I think it gets it gets quite a bit right. I think it actually, like like I said, it comes from a, a a group of people who have definitely held these kinds of jobs before. Yeah, I'm I, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. I, I worked in restaurants for like four years, so I've definitely seen it from the dish pit to the grill. I I had a particular question about that, and I've not worked um, in a restaurant before. I, I found really curious the what was the organizational structure like the business structure of good burger and it seemed clearly different from um mondo burger just in that um dan schneider's character he seemed he seemed like he you know you wouldn't think that an owner would work in the restaurant but he seemed to more or less be the owner and have like a phenomenal amount of control like when ed created the secret sauce he was able to give him like strike a deal with him that he was getting whatever like 10 cents on every every burger sold so it seemed as if he might have been like an owner are uh, that and and he he also I remember him mentioning um like when they only made like eighty dollars in a day or forty dollars in a day that he was gonna have to feed his uh mother cat food so that he had like I mean so it, it seemed like he didn't have that doesn't seem to be how most you know most uh, how I would assume most of the the business aspects of um fast food would go whereas Kurt's um or, uh, organization was obviously very like top down like he had people in line just based off of like either money or fear or both and you know he was you know that seemed to be like more of what i had thought but there seemed to be something different going on at good burger 
I, th- I think there's like an implication that Mondo Burger is probably part of a chain where as mm. he the Dan Schneider character makes a comment that like Good Burger's been here for whatever 70 years or something so it seems more like a family owned business and probably the only one yeah it's it it definitely feels like he's like an owner uh or or at least like a manager partner kind of situation right so uh, which which is not like completely uncommon but it is like a thing that that generally is i mean in in more successful restaurants not the case like there is definitely like a a general manager or like a floor manager who who runs the day-to-day operations as opposed to uh you know the owner doing those things and generally the decisions come from those people or there's like a you know like a, a hierarchy of like two levels up where they employ like a director of operations who handles most of the payroll and billing and and you know, managing all the expenses and the ordering of product and and keeping the inventories and, and the books and everything, and then and then leave like the actual functions of the restaurant to somebody like like a Mr. Bailey. But uh, yeah, I mean, there there are very much like these two different distinctions, right? Like there are sort of more like mom and pop restaurants like Good Burger, um, but Mondo Burger is clearly in the same vein as these sort of like corporate fast food entities, which I think in itself is is an interesting way to to transition into that talk about fast food culture at large in the 90s because it seems like we equate a lot of our uh, more jovial, like more like kind of warm feelings about our fast food experiences and eating like McDonald's or Burger King with that good burger experience, despite the fact that these are corporate entities with the same level of of import and, and control as a Mondo burger. So like... You know, there there's sort of this hybridization of those two ideals, right? There's like the the corporate like ruthless efficiency and 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 growth capacity with the sort of homely comfort food, uh, like all smiles and and like a warm blanket kind of appeal that Good Burger has. Yeah, the article that you had sent made an interesting point that I had never never really thought of before, which is that like Gen X and Millennials are the first generations that grew up where fast food always existed and was a part of your life and i think that you know certainly during uh like our childhoods i don't i don't know necessarily where it stemmed from but it was always something that was viewed as like a reward or like a treat you know like if you were a kid playing soccer or baseball in the 90s probably if your team won you got you know to go to pizza hut or whatever and I think they probably had promotional deals around those kinds of things to, you know, to support that. Obviously, they cultivated the, um, the child audience with like toy deals and things right. like that. But I think there was certainly an idea that they were trying to promote of like associating fast food with um, with being a reward. And the food itself does that to you, right? Like the way that the food is engineered, your body thinks of it as like a reward. It's like jacking up your dopamine levels. I definitely remember there being birthday parties held at like mcdonald's and like pizza hut and round table and the like that like it was very much a part of the the marketing of fast food chains to posit themselves as like convivial like a place where like family gatherings happen and where like important events happen like birthdays and celebrations and also the reward thing was very real for me like Whenever my mom would take me to the dentist, on the way back from the dentist, we would stop at McDonald's and it would be like, okay, you just had your teeth like worked on for the last hour. You did great before you go back to school. We're going to get McDonald's for breakfast. 
So it was absolutely like stitched into me that what that it was a reward. And with Taco Bell in particular, I don't know if you guys had this, but when I was in high school, so not the 90s, but early aughts, that had aged into like, now this place isn't just a place where I spent my childhood and where like I used to go to with my family, but it's a place where we like hang out as a group late at night. Also in the same vein of like, it being a reward, it being like a special place where we could go and, you know, get away from like the grind of of whatever it is we felt we were fleeing in our teenage plight. But I definitely felt like that was a through line that aged with me as a child where it was a place that that stood for like pleasure. Well, and what it represents changes as you grow into your teen years too, because their workforces becomes your friends like it's all Mm -hmm. teenagers that work there so you go and you can get free food from your friends or you can hang out with your friends there so it like changes in significance but is still incredibly significant as you grow up yep you're so right from birth to the grave there's really only (laughs) only fast food go to the grinder that's the grinder the grinder that that kurt alludes to is growing up on fast food becoming part of its workforce and then eventually dying early of heart disease caused by uh, its sodium levels. Woof. Woof. <laughs> but no, but yet you're so right, guys. Like it, I mean, and, and first we should plug that article that Taylor alluded to. Um, it's an Eater article written by uh, Jaya Saxena, and it's all about the sort of new, like, retro glow up of all of these different, um, different fast food brands like KFC, Burger King, um, even like Yingling beer are all reverting back to this very retro, like either 70s or even like 90s aesthetic right now to attempt to capture the warm feelings and, and nostalgia of, of the Gen X and millennials who now make up a sizable portion of the workforce. I love that in the article too, it, it reminds us though that we actually, um, as, as a collective generation, own probably the least amount of wealth yes. <laughs> overall, yeah. but that we actually make up like the largest like consumer section of, of, uh, you know, the, the workforce at the moment. So, and we control popular culture, right. which is the main impetus there. Right. It's, it's that kind of sly, uh, switcheroo that they've done, right. Where it's like, we don't actually own anything and don't actually have any control or handle on the levers of power, but what we do control is culture and the narratives on social media at large so we can convince people uh, to buy more things. And and fast food being what it is and, and you know, the relative ease uh, and cheapness of it all means that they can peddle it to us over and over again um, without us, like, fearing for, for much sort of financial consequence uh, as well. Fast food. McDonald's was, like, always a treat, right? It's, it's just funny to think of, like, going to the dentist to get your teeth cleaned and then gulping down like a large like coke and then eating like all of this like sugar ridden like like stuff you know (laughs) but but it's it's what we did and it's like you know before there was any sort of cultural conversation around it before there was any sort of like scientific consensus around it because people you know didn't bother to look or because like sugar and sodium lobbies were were paying off like researchers not to talk about it uh it it like it didn't even register in, in the zeitgeist. It was just a thing that was like part of us and like part of like being an American. I've always been curious about that. Um, like it seemed as if our, like my parents sort of, and I, or our parents didn't really have a grasp on nutrition really at all. 
Um, I don't know if you had the similar experience, but it was like, and, and like I, I by no means, I have wonderful parents. They were by no means like, you know, negligent or anything like that. <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, it was like pasta and prego every night. And we didn't really eat a lot of fast food just because I'm like, a, you know, we're all vegetarians. And so like there wasn't too much to do there. Yeah, yeah, it was, is there... Was it just, like, weird messaging? I know there was, like, the conspiracy of, like, the food pyramid and everything like that. And that's, like, pretty much the only information I remember about nutrition from that time. But I think a lot of it has to do with the time that our parents grew up was Mm. when a lot of this, you know, this expansion into factory spaces and more sort of commodified consumer goods and a lot of processed foods, like in the 50s, post-war really like had their boom so like my mom grew up with the halo of that being like the Mm -hmm. you know uh, a sign of American progress and like things improving like I've reflected upon this actually myself Travis because I have very different nutritional viewpoints than I did when I was a kid than my parents did when they were my age raising me you know, it didn't come from a lack of like, like my mom gave me vegetables, like we had all that shit. Um, but we did eat fast food. I had like breakfast for dinner every Thursday because like she was working and my dad was working. And so like a lot of it, I think, was like two parents entering the workforce. There's like a certain amount of ease that comes with being a- and convenience that comes with being able to feed your kids this stuff that comes in a box like shake and bake chicken or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so the nutrition narrative was not the thing that dominated the backdrop there. I I remember it all being about like convenience because both of my parents were working. Um, We didn't have a ton of time and, uh, and that that was still a way for us to like sit down and like have a meal together, which was more important than like, what are you putting into your body? Because that really hadn't become a part of the discourse yet. You almost kind of think about it in terms of these two sort of countervailing things happening at once in the 90s, right? Where, you know, the boomer generation kind of grew up in the midst of of this sort of boom in American industry, like in, in the sort of post-war period and, and through like the New Deal era, where there was this sort of uh, inherent trust in brands and and not a lot of research done yet in terms of like the way that advertising and marketing was affecting psychology around people's association with those things. Um, and then as like that slowly started to fade as you moved into, you know, that kind of the neoliberal plight of the 80s and into the 90s, all of a sudden the wealth gap starts to like increase industry goes away like like early like clintonite reforms like you know cutting welfare and and you know nafta which like you know guts american industry as well all of a sudden like creates this space where americans are working more and making less and then fast food becomes a thing that like offers a, a convenient outlet and opportunity to like feed kids without much work and really cheaply to me that seems like the dark underbelly of all this right like we have these nostalgic like warm feelings towards like you know the play places and the happy meals and kids biting each other over beanie babies and their mcdonald's meals and stuff you know but yeah that, that it, it actually kind of represents like twofold they're like people working harder making less money and needing needing a way to like feed their kids yeah i was thinking about that too like the there is an inextricable link between fast food and poverty uh, and it's a self-perpetuating cycle especially when you think about like the kind of because what i was wondering is like 
you know, when when fast food first started, I, I'm not sure if it was, my guess is that it probably was not as nutritionally insubstantial as it is today, that there is a, there was a shift, you know, where sugar amounts increased and like the amount of corn increased in all these products, less and less actual like substantial food. And I wonder if that was happening at the same time, you know, that as you know, our parents' generations were the ones taking over these restaurants, right? They were the ones who were expanding it ad infinitum. Um, and so they kind of didn't maybe realize the effect of it at that time. And it, you know, there was this kind of coinciding of, talking about those kinds of things like obviously in the 90s we didn't have calorie counts on the menus the the badness of sugar wasn't a thing that we talked about or the corn Mm -hmm. subsidies or any of those kinds of things um so maybe the triumphathol is just in the burgers is just trying to progress into the future (laughs) well yeah (laughs) i think that that's a really good point on on the wave he was too early kurt was you know, flew cl- too close to the sun and got burned. <laughs> no, well, but yeah, Travis, like... you make a really interesting point. I mean, both of you guys do. I think the thing that I found myself thinking about with the arc of Kurt and Mondo Burger is like how relevant his violations are to current bad corporate actors that, I mean, we just had last week. This isn't, you know, at the same level, but there were shrimp tails in a box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch, <laughs> right? Like... <laughs> There's, yeah. there's, there are all kinds of violations, um, you know, being made on the part of these corporate manufacturers. And we've heard like horror stories coming out of the pandemic in particular, yeah. where, you know, safety measures aren't being taken and, uh, and a lot of protocols are being circumnavigated. And that was like not a part of the broader cultural narrative at the time. And so I think you're right, Travis, that this is kind of predating that, um, that Mm. like this movie actually points to a lot of malfeasance on the part of this corporate entity that um, at the time we weren't necessarily talking about or even or even aware of the the um and the impression that I got of Kurt um in like his managerial style and the whole way that he was doing everything is it seemed as if he was running Mondo Burger in the way that he felt like businesses were supposed to be run it was almost like maybe I got this impression because he's a very young person in the movie um and it's like it seemed as if he was like through through some through some means given the chance to run this you know this dream business of his and so he's going to be mr manager in the way that he ought to be mr manager and which means being cruel which means maybe spiking the food with triamphetol uh which i looked up and was really disappointed to find out wasn't a real thing (laughs) um and uh yeah and so uh, it, like the ribbon cutting ceremony was really uh, telling of that for me. It's just like it's so preposterous that they're doing a ribbon cutting ceremony with this huge just event going on for a fast food uh, restaurant. And it, that that really all spoke to me that it seemed as if Kurt was just trying to enact this this dream to create this restaurant and and really just like filling a role of what he imagined being you know Mr. Corporate Businessman meant. Yeah, but there are these kinds of things. Like, I have seen much mm. fanfare around, like, the first Five Guys or, like, the first Culver's mm-hmm. or, or the first Shake Shack opening in a particular place. Like, we got Shake Shack here in San Francisco, like, very recently. And for a little while, like, you could not get into it. It was, like, an hour-long wait around the corner to, like, order your mm. food and eat. Have either of you two seen uh, the movie The Founder with Michael Keaton? What do you think, Aaron? 
<laughs> I and I, I I almost knew the answer to that, but like it's it's a pretty good movie. It's it's a uh, Michael Keaton plays the the one of the founders of of the McDonald's Corporation, and it's mm. the story of him basically taking the idea and the the sort of like efficiency and sort of assembly line Henry Fordization of of this particular single entity by the McDonald's brothers and and turning it into this international commodity. And the thing that I think it shows really well and really brilliantly is the ways in which like capitalism kind of just like eventually becomes a self-sustaining thing and like a, a thing that actually gets away from its initial creators. Like you, you inject it with this impetus and before long, the thing just sort of takes control of itself. And there's a, a really interesting line or like a moment in the, in the film where he's at odds with the McDonald's brothers because uh, he wants to make more profit by cutting an employee and making a more efficient assembly line by creating like a powdered substitute for the milkshake that adds water. Mm. And part of their whole business model is that they use real, real milk and real ice cream in their milkshakes. So they're fighting about it, but eventually he just does it anyway. And, you know, they have this like this mixer, this this milkshake machine on hand, and all they're doing is adding like a few gallons of water and like a container of this powder. And so what Taylor was talking about in terms of, you know, things slowly losing their nutritional value, I think is absolutely like an evolution of that growth. It's a, it's just like a, a standard e- extension of of that need for efficiency, that need for continued profit, that need for for constant growth that capitalism requires, especially when it comes to fast food, you know, like when the speed and ease of it is the thing that's more important than than anything else. I just kept thinking about Mondo Burger as a early 90s or, or late 90s proxy for Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Like, I definitely feel like there's a lot of fanfare around his opening, like, those like Amazon fresh stores or whatever, where you can go yeah. in and you just like don't pay for anything. You just like shoplift and leave. And that like he also strikes me as this person who like has an idea of like how, you know, a like corporate owner should like run a business. And that's like what's driving him um, outside of him just being like not a good person. But. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things though, Travis, is in your interpretation, it it presumes that that Kurt is the person that runs things. And I think mm. that this is actually a thing that that the film fails to do. Like the Shawshank Redemption doesn't, I think, effectively really emphasize that sort of like top down hierarchy and the way that these sort of middle managers, you know, don't have any actual control, but still control their underlings in the workforce that is like almost this sort of underclass within their like organization with this sort of ruthless blood sucking ferocity behind it. Taylor and I have have some friends who who made a movie really recently. Um, it's like their first feature. And I like a lot of things about it. But one thing that I really enjoyed about it is that they like gave this middle manager character like his own storyline. And he winds up like being kind of the fall guy who like takes a, a ton of the brunt of this like big fuck up over the course of the movie and ends up being the only person really who like loses his job. And we like see his relationship with like the CEO and the owner. And it's a really interesting dynamic that isn't highlighted here that we don't often see, but this like this feeling of that person also as just like a worker with just a little bit more power in the way that they choose to exploit other people with it. But a lot of that is just to preserve and maintain their own 
level of status. So, I mean, a lot like, you know, the, a, a sort of class within this organization, right? Like they, yeah. they are essentially like, you know, they're, they're, they're lumping, right? Like they're the people whose entire existence is, is meant to just like maintain and establish the societal order so that they can uh, keep their, their position kind of on high, even though there's still people controlling their every move, like at least they've made their lives just a little bit more comfortable. Well, I, I never thought of Kurt as a middle manager. I, that never crossed my mind um, that he could be. And what was interesting, I, I was reading um, uh, Shawshank Redemption conspiracy theories on Reddit, because, <laughs> you know, but the, the main question that people had was, uh, or that people were like perplexed by was where did Kurt get his money to open up this place? The, uh, the main conspiracy theory was that um, in the end, when he is being arrested, he's, uh, you know, he's shouting like his, his, his words like, do you know who I am? Uh, and then, um, and then what, the, what the Reddit conspiracy theories sort of picked up on was, um, so do you know who my father was? Um, and that was the thing that they were saying that, that they were using to explain. And what's interesting is that he didn't actually say that. But but that's still the cornerstone behind the Reddit the Reddit theories is because oh, I paid okay. attention. They did, he didn't actually say, do you know who my father is? Oh, interesting. But, yeah, but that was what was picked up on on the interwebs. Yeah. Well, interesting too that the way that like you know those brilliant redditors who are <clears throat> are usually like a, a bastion of class consciousness and an understanding of <laughs> of left politics would maybe miss that it's not just someone who's independently wealthy that it's actually like a more kind of intersectional. <laughs> And systemic structure and hierarchy, you know, that that actually like feeds this thing that he is just sort of a sort of a vestige of of a, a greater sort of force of mm. capital. And and lest we think that this isn't the way that things actually run in real life, I actually did find um, another article just this morning that I didn't get a chance to share with you guys, but it's it comes courtesy of the Daily Poster, and uh, they they found out that there was an internal memo from uh, a fast food brand called inspire um i think it's inspire brands or inspire foods that owns like buffalo wild wings arby's jimmy john's dunkin donuts that apparently sent an internal memo to all of its like workers including its hourly employees touting that they were successful in helping to lobby the government against including the minimum wage act in the most recent stimulus bill and they're and they're actually controlled i guess this is the my, one of the funniest points of the entire thing is that they are funded by a private equity firm called uh, like Rourke Enterprises, named after Howard Rourke from uh, The Fountainhead. Because <laughs> like, God. of course, it's wow. like an Ayn Rand reference. <laughs> That's too much. Which is just so like, it's like beyond <laughs> like dark. satire. That's like it's dark. just, it's like too topical to feel real. Like it just kind of feels like a thing that that shouldn't exist. The minimum wage conversation is, I think because of how like recently topical it's become in the sort of political discourse. Like I couldn't help but think about that conversation when I was watching this movie and particularly the moment when we find out, uh, well, first of all, we know that uh, Dexter's character is making $5 an hour and he does, you know, rudimentary calculations to land on the conclusion that it's going to take him uh, an entire lifetime, if not more, to pay back Sinbad. Um, and what Kurt offers Kel when he's trying to lure him over is $10 an hour. And I just kept thinking like, 
yes, this is a funny movie. The Shawshank Redemption is a comedy after all. But that felt just like very real. Um, the this sort of thing that even our even the U.S. government is doing, right? Where it's it's this incrementalism of seven twenty five, like uh, it's a starvation wage in any part of the country. Frankly, so is fifteen dollars an hour. But it's better than seven twenty five. It's this thing that we do with uh, with working class jobs all the time, which is a key manipulation tactic. Like for anyone who's studied like psychology 101, it's like you give a little, you take a little bit back, then you give a little bit more because like that seems like, oh, things have improved. But at the end of the day, you're still oppressing people with the scarcity mindset. I just found that like $10 an hour comment. It's a throwaway thing. It's just, they just doubled the number and made it the thing that Kurt offers him. But I found it very dark and very sinister. Um, the real world implications. And and one of the things, and one of the things that um, that whole fast food or the whole minimum wage conversation also related to in my head was um, that, that thing that I pointed out earlier where um, Dan Schneider's character was saying that they only made $83 that day, so he's going to have to feed his, you know, uh, feed his uh, mom cat food. And, and I mean, because, I, I mean, I, in, you, you guys are better at talking about all this stuff than I am, but, I mean, I guess the general idea of why it's kind of a ridiculous, like, the whole, when applied to fast food, like, saying, oh, if you raise them in a minimum wage, it's going to go up. It's like, no, that's not really how it works. It's not like, it's almost, it almost seems like, that is how it worked at Good Burger or how they were implying that it worked is that if you did like if you did raise the minimum wage, then Dan Snyder was going to have to feed his mom cat food. Yeah, um, <laughs> well, it's it's that like leveling tactic, right, where it, it apparently yeah. claims that there's like all of this like there there's a complete lack of excess or any sort of like profit uh, on anybody's behalf that, you know, that that all of the money is already so tight and efficient that like, yeah. there's there's simply no way. For anything to change or any money to be found elsewhere and and obviously that you know uh you know apparently it'll also you know destroy jobs because you know in in this sort of complex ecosystem of like ruthless efficiency apparently there are so many jobs that are already expendable that they're just being kept because uh because they can afford them right now you know and, and not that those jobs like aren't still somehow essential to to the the sort of pecking order and and, and systems that they've created the whole idea of like this like raise thing, yeah, it was it was funny watching in in twenty twenty one about you know like five dollars to ten dollars. You know, I've I've worked in in service and in retail before. And Taylor, I know that you uh, briefly worked as as an hourly employee at a a famous uh, entertainment conglomerate uh, run by a run by a, a pizza loving mouse. That's and, accurate. Uh, <laughs> were you were you ever subject to one of those like completely bullshit like? 25 cent an hour like raises for being there i don't think i ever got a raise there do, <laughs> do either of you remember when the minimum wage changed from five to seven because i want to say it was during that time period actually it almost yeah, certainly was that sounds right i was i was also you know a, a lifeguard at um and I, think and it, I honestly think it was 07 or 09 yeah that it it changed because I was gonna say like oh five probably by like in oh five I think I was making like five dollars and twenty five cents. I don't recall ever getting a raise there, but I do. You know, the the of course restaurant in question that we're discussing is is ch <laughs> and it is a massive <laughs> corporate entity that you know thrives on standardization. Things are the same everywhere, and I was definitely subject to a lot of 
corporate uh, neglect, I guess. Like the reason I ended up quitting actually was because I I worked um, I was working an eleven hour shift. Like it was two two shifts tacked onto each other, and you know I was seventeen at the time. And there are of course federal regulations around the amount of time that you work and the amount of break time that you get. And I was denied a break for that entire time, and I kept asking my manager, you know, like, hey, I know I'm, like, legally entitled to get this break, and I'm really fucking hungry. <laughs> like, I've been working for 11 hours here. And he refused because they were short-staffed, and so I walked out. That was that was my last day there. I just, yeah, I just like, no, this is, I know that this is completely unethical, and I am not willing to be subject to this. I don't know. I don't, I don't think I ever got a raise there. I remember there being a big... If you've ever worked at like a place like that, there are all these like kind of government issued uh, reminders of what your rights are posted on the walls everywhere. They're legally legally required to post them in like a, a a public place where all the employees can see them, like in a break room or a locker room. Yeah, so I remember it was like especially insulting because I could literally point to like my rights on the wall and <laughs> and have them violated like right there. I mean, that place in particular was a total shit show, but. Uh, no, not not my favorite place to work, I would say. Yeah, I've definitely, you know, managed restaurants before where because of the way that the staffing was set up by management or, or by, you know, like operations, it was, you know, the, the, the lunchtime or, or the like 30 minute meal break for these people unpaid fell outside of that first like five or six hour period. That's like federally required for them to take the break in. And so, you know, payroll comes around and, and you submit the hours and, and clear them up so that there is a 30 minute window. And then of course the, the director of operations or, or the, the, you know, bookkeeper and accountant will just shift that into that first six hour period. Um, and, and so everything will be reflected. So no overtime gets paid, right? Like it's, it's because, you know, it, it happened when it happened and, and nothing went wrong. But I, I feel like even in like the, the best work environments in the service industry and, and in like hourly sort of like wage situations, like there's, there's always so much like exploitation happening at any given time, like always some sort of law being broken. Just the amount of waste that occurred. Like if we made the wrong pizza, we were not allowed to eat that pizza. Like it had to be thrown out. And, you know, we were given like a 30% discount on food there or something, which, you know, a discount is a discount. I'm not going to complain about that, but a pretty insubstantial discount. And I just remember being constantly befuddled by like all these pizzas being thrown out. And it felt so much like I was being shuttled towards giving them more money. It's almost like you were. <laughs> you for sure were. You were for sure giving them money. They were earning off of you. Um, yeah, the, the food waste thing is something that is like a whole other can of worms that we could talk about, particularly in the context of this movie. But the other thing that I want to bring up, since we are talking about the minimum wage conversation, and this movie does something that I think is germane to the current discourse around minimum wage and sort of like working class jobs. We kind of rationalize a way that the pay is low because these jobs are less hard. Therefore, younger people to use as like a stepping stone into their next higher paying job. And we know that that is actually not at all the case. I feel like this movie, The Shawshank Redemption, reinforces a lot of those problematic narratives, particularly with the character of Ed, whom I love, but I found his stupidity and his sort of fecklessness and just his complete 
lack of any kind of agency or, or coherence to be reinforcing this idea that this job is for people who, finger quotes, don't deserve as much or who aren't as qualified to work in, say, like the tech sector. Yeah. It's the meritocracy debate all the time, right? Despite the fact that we know that contrary to that assumption that minimum wage work, specifically service sector work, is held by people like predominantly over the age of 30. Like minimum wage work doesn't ju isn't just burger flippers the way that people try to reduce it down to, that it's actually like healthcare workers, it's actually like housekeepers, it's actually trash collectors, janitorial work, like all of these essential functions of society that like we're not gonna do and that like people will absolutely notice if someone wasn't doing it. But we still like to treat all of these things as somewhat like, you know, inessential or, or belonging to a, a lower class of people and thus only deserving of like this meager, meager earning. Um, I don't know if you guys saw this Amazon stuff going on, like like Bernie is in in Alabama right now, along with like Killer Mike and some people advocating for this, this Amazon union forming. Um, but the Amazon Twitter account, Amazon News, has been just like mouthing off on Twitter and getting very ratioed, by the way, which is which is like very uh, endearing and fun to see. But they made an argument that so many people make where uh, someone accused them, you know, by, by citing references and by citing like, you know, uh, former employee accounts of people shitting in bags and like peeing in bottles because they literally weren't allowed to like use the restroom for fear that they would lose their jobs because of a lack of efficiency. And this Amazon Twitter account, this, you know, like middle management or, or like, you know, social media employee stooge who like could also probably benefit from a union, frankly, was like saying like, you don't actually believe that story, do you? And said the same thing that so many people do, which is like, if, if we were really exploiting our workforce and the conditions here were really that bad, people wouldn't work for us. And it's yeah. like, it's such a bullshit argument. Yeah, because these people have so much agency and mobility. There's so many great opportunities for them available elsewhere. It's class erasure. It's like this idea that like we all have a certain amount of agency in deciding how we earn a living. And we absolutely don't. It's a small percentage of people who have the luxury to be able to do that. Well, and even in the Shawshank Redemption, you have Abe Vigoda's character, right, who is like 70-something years old and still working in a fast food joint. Yep. And he even says, I should have died years ago. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's a tragic figure. The, the Yeah, I mean, the thing that really, um, like that point that you were making, Carly, is uh, really weighed on me um, just like in terms of like the present moment and, and how, how like mainstream the market, the stock market and um, like cryptocurrency has become. And I mean, and just like, I've never heard anybody disagree with my recounting of my personal experience of basically the amount of work that you do at your job is inversely proportional to the amount of money that you make. I mean, the hardest jobs that I've ever had, I was making like, you know, minimum wage and getting the crap beaten out of me. And like that was I, the, the most money that I've ever made or probably will ever make is because I was like stoned on a boat and talking about bitcoin <laughs> like like uh. that's that's where the vast majority of my wealth that i have accrued in this lifetime has come from was just nothing yes nothing. i didn't it wasn't any like intelligent play where i was like oh well i think this is gonna be the thing of the future it's like 
oh, would you like some Bitcoin? And I'm hungover on a couch and just being like, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's that's the most intelligent financial play that I've ever made in my life. And so talk about earning it. Yeah, you know? totally. <laughs> I mean, we're in a we're in a system where that enables and perpetuates mediocrity rising to the top constantly. Hey, now. <laughs> no. Not not you. That excuse. Not Travis. you. Not if, you, fine gentleman. If it ain't about you, it ain't about you, Travis, okay? <laughs> Don't take offense. One thing I'm surprised we haven't talked about, and I know we're trying to wrap up, but like is that one moment of clarity at the end when um when Ed just tells you what the movie's about. And, you know, and he talks about like the the over over flooding of the of the court system. And I I, I think it would be worth like I don't have it all written down, but it was like yeah. I mean, an obvious joke coming from somebody whose singular, like, comedic move is to just take things literally. <laughs> but, but yeah, that, that was, I mean, I, I get why it's in the movie and why it's funny, but that was, yeah. Well, I would, I would push back, Travis, and say that there are okay. two moments of explicit clarity on behalf of Ed. Mm. One of them is when he, with 98% accuracy, interprets a dog who is trying to let him know uh, that a a clown car is broken down somewhere and that he needs to go help them. The only thing he gets wrong is that he says there are four clowns and there are actually five clowns in a broken down vehicle. So that's that's my favorite scene. Right. So there's, so there's that level of intuition, but yeah, at the end too, like there is this, this moment where he breaks the illusion of his absent mindedness and stupidity to let you know that he actually is aware of, so many of society's ills. And in that way, I think, along with being perhaps like the the uh, the Ubermensch interpretation on behalf of, of Ed, it's also in some ways like the Ur dirtbag leftist podcaster, where he is putting on a facade, he's using this kayfabe of irony in order to shield himself from uh, from the depression that comes by acknowledging everything that is wrong that he's powerless to correct within his society. You might be right about that. I I would argue though that those two moments of clarity are different. They're very different things. Like the fact that he can, you know, commune with animals. That he's like can speak lassie or whatever is like very different than him sort of, you know, accurately interpreting the intersectionality of like all of these oppressive systems to come together to make the the movie what it is i'm this is fresh in my mind because we just talked about wayne's world but this isn't like a a pretty common a common enough cinematic trope or like comedic trope i think even in serialized format as well common enough that i i recognize it and and have seen it several times and can identify it which is giving these characters that seem sort of one note and presented to be lacking a certain amount of intelligence this like gotcha moment where they riff on a bunch of shit that you know we don't expect them to this happens in old school with Will Ferrell's character when he oh, like the debate against James blacks Carville. out and like I don't even remember what the topic is but it's some like something about like global commerce or something right globalization like the market for technology yes. technology or something like that um and also in Wayne's World when Dana Carvey's character Garth like has this like moment of 
what they sort of present to be like autistic clarity of how he's going to triangulate satellite signals and beam the broadcast of Cassandra's performance into Mr. Sharp's like limousine or whatever. And he does all of these, you know, intense calculations and talks about them out loud. And like, you know, so with that at the end of this movie, it felt a little bit trite, but I also think that with Ed's character in particular, the reason that it feels slightly differentiated than than sort of this trope that we see elsewhere is that I think Ed's character, while we're meant to believe that he is stupid, I guess, we are actually given some indication throughout several points in the movie that there is like an amount of pathos to him, right? Like this desire for connection with Dexter's character, um, a need for friendship, his like wanting to please. Yeah, he takes things really literally, but I also feel like we're given indicators that he has like a very emotional core that um, that is in touch with collectives that exist outside of just, you know, the thing that's in front of him. That's my woo-woo interpretation of that yeah i agree totally with that i think Mm. that kel does an incredible job selling that side of him too like with uh, with really little bits of dialogue like there's the the moment where he asks uh dexter you know if he wants to hang out and dexter turns him down and then he's just like please and it like crushes me inside yes yeah totally (laughs) that moment was heartbreaking he buys him a yo-yo that lights up because he's an excellent listener and has heard this entire story about uh, Dexter's relationship with a yo-yo as a means of connecting with his absent father. There's a lot here going on in the Shawshank Redemption. I think that's probably a good place to close. Uh, the film, as we said, is the Shawshank Redemption. Find it. Watch it. I believe it's available on Netflix. Though, it is. You know, if you can burn your Netflix account, do it. Uh, Pirate that shit, yo. Thank you so much again to Taylor Grimes and Travis Snyder for being on the program today. Gentlemen, we appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's fun. You've been our friends before the pod. You'll be our friends after the pod. And uh, yeah, it's just great getting a chance to, to riff with you guys for a little bit and, uh, and talk about one of the best movies of the 90s. As always, we uh, are Hit Factory. You can follow us at Hit Factory Pod. Patreon.com slash HitFactoryPod to subscribe. And uh, shout out to our capitalist overlord, Linda. We will see you next time, everyone. Bye-bye. It's time to put our times behind. Get all the bad things off your mind. He's feeling good. She's feeling good. We're feeling good, yeah. Just hanging out. Just having fun. We're number one. Just hanging out. Just having fun. I'm a dude. He's a dude. She's a dude. We're all dudes. Hey, I'm a dude. He's a dude.
popular movies, uh, some, some blockbusters, some, some high-grossing fare, uh, but, but few of the films, I think, could be considered uh, in the pantheon of, of the titans of 90s cinema in quite the same way as today's movie, uh, which, of course, is The Shawshank Redemption, uh, directed by Brian Rollins and uh, starring... <laughs> I'm not going to be able to do this with video. What? No, we're not. How dare you laugh at such a moving, <laughs> touching tribute to the strength of humanity. I'm just like watching Carly try. trying to keep her shit together. <laughs> All right, well, let's try that again. I'm going to ruin it. I'm totally going to ruin it. <laughs> God damn it.